Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew 27, 45-50. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine and vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Jesus once said, You're blessed when you're poor, when you're sad. When you're humbled, hungry, suffering, humiliated, and hated. I wonder if he felt blessed on the cross. These kinds of experiences of uh, poverty, of mourning, they don't tend to make us feel happy, blessed. More often than not, they cause us to doubt, to question, Lord, where are you? What are you doing? Where was God when my aunt passed away? Meeting my three cousins. Where's God when war, natural disaster, leaves an entire country humiliated? Where is God when children are trafficked, abused, violated? These are big questions. Perhaps too big for me to answer, but not too big to bring to God. For the next several weeks leading up into Easter, we're going to be looking at the seven last sayings of Jesus recorded in the Gospels on the cross. We'll be reflecting on what it means for God to be with us in the middle of the valley, shadow of death. We sing songs about his resurrection and his power, and that is good and right and appropriate. Yet to also know that he's with us, even in darkest places. The first saying here is the only one that's recorded in both Matthew and Mark, and it's a bit profound in its contradiction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God incarnate cries out as God forsaken. Before I share some reflections on what this may mean for us, I want to take a moment and just chew on the text together a little bit. There's some intriguing points in the narrative, and they bring up questions that don't necessarily have clear or settled answers, but I think exploring the options can give us greater appreciation for the text itself, and then we'll reflect on well, what does it mean for us here and now. And uh, Hank, if you want to, I don't have slides, but uh, as I go through different parts of the text, you can feel free to, to put those uh, scripture passages back on the slides here as well. First question I want to, to deal with is the darkness. What's going on with the darkness in the land? I've heard a few different uh, explanations, both for what may have been happening with a solar eclipse or something like that happening, uh, and also responses to that saying there's no way that could have happened. But all of these kind of delving uh, into that darkness and, uh, uh, and, and how it happened doesn't necessarily answer the question of why, why it happened. There seems to be something more going on here in the text than just the fact reporting of it, but the darkness means something in this moment, something significant, right? Uh, I think the text is, is, is concerned with more than that. There's a drama to the moment. Does the darkness here, does it symbolize the reality of Jesus' abandonment? Or is it a symbol of Father's grief, the suffering of the Son? Or perhaps it's all of creation groaning in response to uh, 
uh, its creator's anguish. We know that something significant is happening here. The created order knows it in some way. In fact, while people have had a terribly difficult time recognizing and responding to Jesus throughout the Gospels, the rest of creation hasn't shown any such confusion. Right At Jesus' birth, we saw stars in the heavenly host participating, singing songs, guiding the way uh, for, for people to come and find Jesus. At Jesus' baptism, the heavens rend open. A dove symbolizes the Spirit's presence and God's delight over Jesus' sonship. At Jesus' transfiguration, Matthew 17, it says that Peter, James, and John see Jesus shining in radiant light and that they're enveloped in this white cloud here and this, this voice of delight again speaking for Jesus. There are just three examples of these supernatural signals of delight through sound and light. But now, now there's the supernatural darkness. The light present, but grief, anguish. And then there's this confusing episode that follows it, right? With Jesus' cry and the following conversation about Elijah. Amid the darkness, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he says it in Aramaic. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. It's a direct quote from Psalm 22, which is this cry, if you read through the whole psalm, it's a cry of an innocent and righteous person yearning for vindication by God. We read some of it earlier this morning. But Jesus only gets out the first line. Perhaps because of his lack of breath, perhaps because it's honestly all that he feels in the moment. It's just this abandonment. It says that when people nearby heard this, they responded, he's calling for Elijah. Why do they think that? There's a few different possibilities here. One common explanation is uh, just that they misheard him, right? Eli, Eli, sounds like Elijah. They heard that, and so they, they make that connection. Uh, some other people suggest that they're deliberately twisting his words, and they're just trying to mock him at this point. Already uh, uh, said, you know, oh, he's saved others, but can he save himself? That kind of thing. I'm going to suggest a third option here, too. It's not a settled answer, but it's just a possibility. It could be that they recognize the psalm that he is quoting and the hope that comes with it. They may be pairing that with this prophecy from Malachi 4 that Elijah would return before the day of the Lord. We know also that it was not uncommon during that time for rabbis to appeal to Elijah specifically to come and help them in a time of need. So if, if Jesus really was the Messiah and he was crying out, anguish in this sort of way, perhaps they expected that the only hope that he had was Elijah to come rescue. Whatever they actually thought, what they do is to offer him a drink. Uh, we'll talk more about this in a future week, this uh, uh, bitter wine or uh, the, the, the wine vinegar, uh, about what that might mean. But, but then they say, let's wait and see if Elijah actually will come to him. I do want to note here just this atmosphere shift that has happened. Because people have been mocking Jesus up to this point. But that was before the darkness. Before this three-hour darkness settled over the land, and it seems like things are getting serious. So they've, they've seen the sky turn dark at midday. They may genuinely think anything could happen here. But no help does arrive, at least not in the way that they were looking for. Jesus gives another loud cry. He reads his last this is followed by a series of uh, supernatural events as well that we didn't read this morning. But after this, the temple curtain is torn. There's an earthquake. 
There's random people being raised to life. It says just walking out of their graves. To such an extent that the, the people guarding Jesus exclaim, Surely this man was the Son of God. And yet, Jesus was gone. He had died. This is a dark, dark moment in the story of salvation. Yet even here, I want to suggest three ways that we see good news. There's three affirmations that we can make both about ourselves in the midst of our suffering and about where God is. We can know that we are not alone. God is near. That we are not hopeless. God is able. That we are not offensive in in the midst of our suffering. God is listening. So the first truth here that we can affirm is that God is near to us in the midst of our pain and our suffering. We are not alone. Now, how do we get that from this text? I mean, isn't Jesus crying out about being forsaken, about feeling alone? But we see that the darkness and the cry of agony together tell us of our God who can empathize with us in our pain. Not just the Son, but the Father as well. In the deep darkness of that day, we see the grief of the Father of the death of the Son. In the cry of Jesus, we see the lament of the Son and the agony of dying. A German theologian named Jürgen Moltmann says it this way. says, to understand what happened between Jesus and God the Father on the cross, it's necessary to talk in Trinitarian terms. The Son suffers dying. The Father suffers the death of the Son. The grief of the Father here is just as important as the death of the Son. The fatherlessness of the Son is matched by the sonlessness of the Father. And if God has constituted himself as the Father of Jesus Christ, then he also suffers the death of his fatherhood, the death of his Son. And don't miss what comes next here, because it's really important. He says that... uh, in this suffering that we are united to God in a profound way. He says it like this. What proceeds from this event between father and son is the spirit which justifies the godless, fills the forsaken with love, and even brings the dead alive. Remember the dead coming out of the tomb. Since even the fact that they are dead cannot exclude them from this event on the cross. The death in God also includes is from uh, his book, The Crucified God, if you want to look that up. But hear this, friends. The good news of this moment on the cross is that our God identifies with us in our deepest pain, in our deepest places of anguish and grief, of loss, of feeling completely alone. He's been there. He empathizes with us. Like that verse in Hebrews that we read earlier, that we have a great high priest who empathizes with us, knows we have gone through. You may feel alone, but you are not alone. Our God is near to us in our suffering, grieving with us. One of my favorite songs by Matt Mayer is called You Are on the Cross. It says, where were you when all that I've hoped for, where were you when all that I've dreamed came crashing down and shambling around me? Where were you when sin stole my innocence? Where were you when I was ashamed, hiding in a life I wish I never made? You were on the cross. But why? Why? If this was so bad, why should God go through it at all? To bring us hope. 
was lost. The second affirmation that we can make is that uh, we are not hopeless in the valley, that God is able. We're not alone in our suffering. That is a comfort of its own, but there's more to it than that. We will talk about this in more detail come Easter Sunday, but we have to forecast a little bit, right? Because ultimately the grave will not stay empty. And it's in the resurrection that we'll discover that our God is not only able to identify it with us in our suffering, but also uniquely able to free us, help us. Even in the darkness of that Friday, we see the power of the Spirit break out as the temple curtain is torn. Dead people start walking out of their graves. This is just the beginning. But it is precisely because God has so directly experienced and confronted suffering and death that resurrection is so meaningful for us. Resurrection has happened prior to this too, right? Lazarus was resurrected. There were others that Jesus rose from the dead. But God has confronted death in this moment. God has confronted death and all its friends. They have been exposed rendered powerless. Jesus has been ready for this confrontation since the beginning of his ministry. You remember uh, right after his baptism, what happened? The Spirit compelled him to go out into the wilderness. He experienced these three temptations in the wilderness. And one of them, the devil, the devil came to him and, and brought him onto the top of the temple, right? And said, Why you throw yourself off the temple? Isn't it written in the Psalms that angels will come and, and help you? Just Throw yourself off here. Let everyone know how much the Father loves you, how impressive you are, how much he cares for you. But Jesus didn't need to prove to everyone how much the Father loved him. He was secure in that love, secure enough that he could endure loss, knowing that there was greater victory on the other side. We're given that same sort of hope. The Bible doesn't promise us that our life will be without pain or without suffering. That's a part of life, the result of sin and our broken world. But the Bible does promise that those who are united to Christ in faithfulness will be vindicated in the new creation. So even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can do so without fear. Not because uh, we will never experience harm or death, but because death lost its sting. Because there's more. And this is not kind of like some glad morning, I'll fly away of hope that can kind of make us feel passive, right? inactive in the world. This sort of escapist mentality that just resigns ourselves to this is how the world is. You know, things will we'll, we'll just wait for, for that future day. This is more like the kind of hope and help that comes to us that sustains us in the midst of suffering and helps us to stand up to the powers of the world in a way that confronts the, the order of evil in the world. This is like a Martin Luther King Jr., knowing what was coming his way. He, he, he could sense uh, what was happening before his death. And in his last public speech, he, he, he ended it saying, I've been to the mountaintop. I may not get there with you, but as a people, I know that we will get to the promised land. I'm not fearing any man. He says, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is able to take a stand for truth, even knowing, even knowing that there are violent people who will try to take his life. And ultimately, they did. But he was sustained. He was sustained. You are not hopeless or helpless in your suffering. Our God is able. 
The question is not ultimately whether God will be victorious, but how we will endure in the faithfulness until the battle is done. And here's where Jesus' words on the cross become so meaningful. It helps us with this third truth, that we can affirm that our lament and suffering is not offensive to God, that he is listening. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As we noted before, it's a cry of lament taken directly from Psalm 22. The fact that it's a quote shouldn't detract from Jesus' experience. He quotes it for a reason. He is leaning on the psalm because of his experience. The psalms give him language to articulate his anguish and his pain. But what can we take away from this? That lament is right and appropriate in our times of deep hurting and pain and grief. This is an important lesson because I know that many of us have been taught that Christians should always be shiny, happy people. Always uh, have a smile on our face no matter what we are going through. Is to do otherwise would show a lack of faith or be offensive to God in some way. But your pain and your lament is not offensive to God. He is listening. He wants to hear the deepest cries of our hearts. There are things that are offensive to God. Greed, spite, hypocrisy, abuse, not grief. You remember the words of Isaiah when he's God is, is talking to the people and saying, you bring these sacrifices and, and having these festivals when you are ignoring the plight of, of the poor and of the needy, of the orphan and the widow. You're, all your songs are like noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. It was offensive to have calloused hearts when there's suffering in the world. It's not offensive to God when you cry out in frustration, anger, doubt, and despair because God is big enough for our doubt. And profoundly, God himself expressed these words of deep anguish on the cross. Jesus has given us both example and permission. We're not limited to platitudes or niceties in our walk with God, because we know that it's not offensive when we, when we rage and when we doubt. We know that in the Psalms, we have a half a book's worth of, of lament that we can take example from. So please, Take your pain to God. Your pain is not offensive to him. What is offensive to God is to withhold our heart from God when he's gone to the utter depths of the human experience to show love and grace and empathy. Now, I was, as I was praying about uh, this sermon this week and, and, and how to make this evident, I was also noting for myself, I was having a pretty good week. Even this morning as I was coming in, uh, I was noting, man, it's a, I'm in a pretty chipper mood to be praying about or, or speaking about being God forsaken. Um, and so, how, what do we do with this, even in the midst of our uh, our good day to day life? Things are going pretty well. We can we can know that we need to resource ourselves, be ready for those times, which may not always be good, and also to be aware that we're not the only people in the world. There are others who are going through a much harder time, and sometimes. Things that we could never be able to see, not on the surface. To be aware that God cares for those who are hurting. As I was reflecting on this this week, praying and asking God, what do you, what do you want to say to me or say to us? I was surprised to kind of hear, hear this from the Spirit. 
My child, my child, why have you forsaken me? I'm a pastor, but in the midst of my own busyness and distractions, even I can withhold my doubt, my grief, my anger. God, even I can be sometimes unaware of what's going on in the world and even the pain of God over the hurting of his children. Are there times in which I have forsaken the presence of the Spirit of God because of my own desire for my own comfort? Stand well, just wanting to be present to my own happiness, circumstances. In the midst of all that, I hear the Spirit calling, I have time for you. Your pain. You have time for mine. Today, I invite us to give Jesus our time and our hearts. May we not. Lord, we thank you for what you, all that you have done for us. All Thank you that you are present with us in the midst of our own pain, grief, anguish. We pray, Lord, that we might have our eyes, our hearts, our spirits attentive and open to see the needs of others around us. Not to balance, not to mock, not to be indifferent. Be stirred to empathy and compassion. For those of us who are in a time where we feel strong, stable, happy, content, blessed, we pray that you might open our eyes to be there, be your hands, a warm embrace, a listening ear for those in need. For those of us who are suffering, either uh, either out loud or quietly, may we receive the comfort of your presence. May we know that you are near. Amen.